بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم السلام عليكم my name is Ubaidullah Evans and today I have the honor of hosting the Renovatio podcast and we're in conversation this evening about a topic that is checkered as the author of a substantive point of departure article for this evening mentioned but central to our religious understanding. We're going to be talking about idolatry and associationism. And my guests for this evening are Rushan Abbasi, Dr. Rushan Abbasi, who is a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in the humanities and lecturer in the Department of Religious Studies at Stanford University. He received his PhD from the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University in 2021, where his dissertation was awarded the prestigious Al-Walid bin Talal Prize for Best Dissertation in Islamic Studies. In general, Professor Abbasi's scholarly work seeks to bring the pre-modern Islamic intellectual and cultural heritage to bear on contemporary debates in religious studies and social theory. And I'm also going to be conversing with Dr. Omar Qureshi, who is a scholar of educational philosophy, ethics, theology, and Islamic law. His field specialties include science education, philosophy of education, metaphysics, ethics, theology, and Islamic law. At Zaytuna College, Dr. Qureshi has taught metaphysical foundations, contemporary Muslim thought, Al-Ghazali, advanced Arabic grammar, classical Muslim texts and commentaries, and legal theory, all in the bachelor's program. Assalamu alaikum. How are you, gentlemen? Salam, doing well. Thanks for having us. Welcome. I want to get right into this, man, because, you know, this, this article that Rushan authored that is featured in the upcoming edition of uh, Renovatio, The Idols We Carry in Our Hearts, it brought me face to face with one of my greatest uh, fears, actually. Right? I grew up and I became Muslim in a kind of religious milieu in which there was great, intense debate about theology, about Aqidah. And a lot of that was the modern reformist Salafi you know, movement wanting to purify all of our Aqidah of blameworthy innovation and associationism, shirk. And so I think in the interest of you know, uh, Muslim unity, we had adopted this position of like, look, the Prophet Wasallam said that he doesn't fear shirk for our ummah. Why are we accusing each other of shirk? This is divisive. This is something that, that runs contrary to our aims of, you know, unity and, you know, pluralism. And so to find Rushan suggesting that we, you know, approach this topic of shirk, of, you know, of idolatry, uh, and that there's utility, you know, in that for, you know, people thinking about Islam in the modern context, I thought that's challenging because we used to talk a lot about idolatry and shirk, but it was a, a very divisive topic. I don't think that's what you intend here, though. Uh, why don't you talk to me a bit about, or talk to us a bit about what you intended in writing this article? Yes, well, thank you for the question, Obedullah. It's very well articulated, precisely because it began as a challenge for me as well. So... You alluded to this point about the emphasis on unity 
in the modern period. And I think it's a really good point because it's sort of a reactionary position we were all, you know, sort of forced into as modern Muslims. We had to unite, whether within specific nation states for our independence movements or as a global ummah to secure our own sort of political interest in the face of Western onslaught of invasions and so on and so forth. And I've always felt that we've sort of missed out on a kind of more deep and kind of dynamic relationship to our past because we're in this sort of reactionary position. But more pertinently to your last point, the thing that really interested me, and this is why I begin the article by mentioning, you know, the term idolatry, it sounds sort of outdated, even when we talk about it. Today. I mean, even the term idolatrous, no one is going to toss around that term in a normal conversation. Yet it's, you know, throughout the Quran, you encounter it in almost, you know, every chapter of the Quran. And so we, we commit ourselves to this book that's constantly speaking about this idea, but then it doesn't really pervade our own discourse. And again, it could be, it's also for good reason that that's the case, right? Idolatry has always had this tendency to be sort of abused, one might say, in the sense that it's employed to kind of draw boundaries between the monotheist and the idolater, the believer and non-believer, so on and so forth, right? And I alluded to these examples, whether it's the kind of purification of monotheism in modern Muslim societies, or the West's understanding of idolatry to say other religions are lesser, they're lesser human beings than us in the West. So, you know, there are many ways in which this is a challenge. It's increasing relevance, but also it's, uh, easy, it's easily abused nature. And so I wanted to say, well, let's try to think again about this category. I mean, we commit ourselves to its centrality to our lives, but we don't really think about its sort of deeper uh, sort of conceptual frameworks and, and principles. And one of the things that I wanted to do in the article to sort of move beyond the polemical usage of this category or a complete rejection of it is to say, well, first of all, we should really understand what is a kind of distinctively uh, Islamic conception of idolatry. Because usually when you talk about the idolatry associated with other scriptures, like the biblical scriptures, obviously, in the Roman context, so on and so forth. And that's why I took a sort of historical approach to say, well, what's distinctive about the Islamic conception of idolatry vis-a-vis these other scriptures? And I think there's a sort of deeper philosophical criticism, a kind of social criticism even, at the heart of the Quran's understanding of idolatry. It's a very robust and dynamic term. One thing I also noted in the article is how it's used in so many different ways. There's so many objects of idolatry in the Quran, which is very distinctive from uh, kind of biblical precedents. So I wanted to continuously reflect on that. And then to bring it into sort of a modern mode of analysis, I said, well, let's think about current, you know, philosophical trends. Let's think about, you know, new ways of being in the world and how idolatry could speak to that. And so it's not merely a concept which is saying, well, don't bow down to idols, which isn't a really pressing problem in our modern day and age. But to say, well, are there other sort of deeper idols in our lives, in our society, in our politics, even in our religious life, we might say, that may be exposed in the critical reading and a creative reading of the Quran. And so that was very much at the heart of what I wanted to do. I think that leads me to a very, I'll, I'll come back to you for an answer to this question as well, Rushan, but for you, Dr. Omar, when you think of idolatry uh, as a trained theologian, are you, are you convinced that shirk and idolatry are synonymous or are we talking about two distinct categories? That's a great question. You know, I, I don't consider myself a theologian. Uh, I'm still studying, but inshallah, let's try to drink from the wells of our theologians and see what comes up. When you look at shirk and immediately kind of what comes to mind, perhaps in our Christian context or vestiges of Christianity, the context we live in here in the United States, perhaps, yes, idolatry, you know, does immediately come to mind. 
And that is not negated by the Quran. You know, that is one instantiation of shirk, of, you know, idolatry definitely has that. And I would suggest perhaps to look at, you know, shirk, the term shirk rather than idolatry. And because shirk is more of a universal concept and idolatry may be one instance or one instantiation of that universal. And if you look at, you know, what, how our scholars have understood shirk, they essentially divided it you know, into technically into two broad categories. One is greater shirk or, well, perhaps before I get to that, you know, the term shirk, I know Roshain explained it eloquently in his essay, but for our purposes here, it's assigning a co-share with God or assigning attributes of divinity to objects or entities other than God. And so most of our scholars will see two broad categories. Uh, one is the greater shirk, is called a shirk al-akbar, or, and that is assigning, or that is affirming another entity, another divine entity, sharing in the, the essential attributes of the divine, of God. And the other category of shirk is the lesser shirk, and that is, as our scholars say, huwa mura'atu It is to notice and to observe other than God in some affairs in your life. And of course, the so it's really interesting how this is considered shirk, just to notice other than God. And of course, the legal implications and theological implications of both categories are very different. The first category is very serious, or both categories are very serious, but the first category, shirk al-Akbar, the greater shirk, takes one outside of the religion of Islam, but the lesser, but the minor shirk, it's, 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 it's very dangerous as well in the spiritual life of a believer. And you can see much of our literature focusing on both categories of shirk, but they definitely um, pay more attention, or, or I shouldn't say more attention, but they definitely pay equal amount of attention to the lesser shirk of how do we live our lives as Muslims where we're only observing God and we're not um, committing shirk, this lesser shirk, in our daily lives, whether it be our acts of worship or whether it be how we think and, and what we believe about our reality uh, in the greater cosmos. MashaAllah. I want to read something that uh, Dr. Abbasi wrote that really, I, I found it deeply uh, captivating. He said, the Quranic, and I'm paraphrasing, the Quranic conception of shirk is not a label for a specific belief system or religious custom, but instead represents the natural human tendency to wrongfully idolize the things around us and consequently obstruct our direct encounter with the real, right? You know, Rushan, that idea of shirk, is that kind of what you're getting at by, this is kind of the Quranic conception of idolatry as well? Yes, I do think that. I mean, one of the ways in which I like to approach the Quran as someone who works in the history of religions and especially the history of scriptures is to look at how the Quran speaks to overcomes the deficiencies of earlier scriptures, which is its sort of explicit purpose, and it sort of declares that throughout, which is so unique among the world's scriptures. It, the, people talk about the self-conscious nature of the Quran. And so one of the things that I think it's trying to do is to say, well, it, it sort of goes beyond these very very contingent understandings of idolatry. If you think, for example, the biblical, the, the, the Old Testament understanding of idolatry, it's within the specific history of, of a single community and their tendency to erect actual calves to worship, so on and so forth. And there's this, I, there's very much an idea of kind of 
being committed to God's covenant with a single community versus going outside to a foreign God. So it's the foreign versus the kind of the stranger versus the internal. But I think the Quran really conceptually speaking, universalizes this idea, which is why I wanted to speak of in terms of the real. I mean, we could define that in many ways. I mean, obviously, one of the ways in which we define or attribute understanding of, the, of Allah is to say Al-Haq, right? He is the real. And so I think that's not something which I'm imposing on the Quran. It's the spe- specifically how the Quran seeks to move beyond these very specific conceptions of idolatry and to say, well, this is not, I think, and I think Dr. Krishi is right here, it's not simply idolatry, right? Idolatry is one form, but to make it the central concept in the Quran, it really is one of the, if not the central concept of the Quran, is really an important sort of point to take into account. And I think one of the things Dr. Krishi said that I absolutely agree with is, it's very easy for us to say, well, you know, we don't have the problem with shirk, right? We're Muslims. That's we. That's the first thing we committed to. When I said, this is good. I'm in it. But then that's to sort of push away all of the sort of dynamism of the Quran's critique of humanity's tendency to exactly do this, right? To idolize those things around us, to see, as I said in the article, divinity as a spectrum of priorities rather than as this sort of radical singularity of divine oneness. And so I, I absolutely think that the Quran is so utterly unique in its approach to this question. And I think it's also part and parcel of the fact that it creates this new term. I mean, it associates this new term, literally association. And, and that brings with it so much, I think, philosophical depth that we can continuously probe. I hope this is just the kind of first, or one amongst many, but the first kind of creative attempt to say, okay, what is it saying? But I think there's so much more to be, to be done. You know, one of the things for Shane about, I was thinking about what you're doing here with the term shirk is you mentioned there's people who want to jettison the term from our vocabulary, and then there are people who kind of misunderstand it and misapply the term. And I, I was thinking of the term kufr, right? It kind of suffers a similar fate in our context, where it's definitely being misapplied, and they're pretty obvious concept, uh, there are instances of where the term is being misapplied in very dangerous ways, in violent ways. Nonetheless, the reaction many people have is, well, let's jettison the term kufr right, from the Quran and, and our vocabulary as Muslims. And I recall some many scholars saying, no, 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 we need to really think about this term kufr. It's just like shirk, kufr, tawhid, and other terms, they're so central to the the Quranic discourse that if you were to take away the terms or mis- misunderstand them, you'd really be misunderstanding the whole message of the Quran. So I really appreciate what you're doing here. Thank you. Yeah. A, qu- a question I have for you, uh, Dr. Qureshi, you know, what I was saying at the onset of the conversation about almost this moratorium on theological disputation, right? You know, arguing about i'tiqad that, you know, holds together a very tenuous, very fragile kind of peace in the Muslim community. This is something that I experience regularly. And one of the ways that we, you know, you know express that, that kind of detente is that when we see somebody doing something that one might call a practice of shirk, we say, if the person is Muslim and we have a good opinion of that person, it's just you know, a question of, of shari'iyat. It's just a question of fiqh. Is it halal or haram to worship in a cemetery? Is it halal or haram to use an amulet in that way? Is it halal? We say we don't open the door to questioning whether or not the person is guilty of shirk because... You know, the implications of takfir 
and anathematizing people, et cetera, is just, it's, it's too risky. It's too great. So how do I practically deploy this idea of, you know, being careful of shuruk without falling into the morass of, you know, intramural religious rivalry, so as to speak? That's a tough question, but I'll give it a shot here. <laughs> Where, you know, what I think in my own personal life, what saved me, you know, I think from this tendency is to understand the principles of the Sharia, the Qawaid that are in place in the Sharia. And some of them you've alluded to, which is one of them is that if a person hourly, if they just declare the testimony of faith, we know with certainty then that they're a Muslim and we treat them as such. And only something with equal certainty can be a reason for anathematizing that Muslim, you know. And so we have to see, and scholars and jurists have identified many of those acts, we can say in statements, that, that would um, constitute anathematization. Nonetheless, there's a whole process where basically we as Muslims, as common Muslims, we don't really have the authority to go about and declaring people that, like doing takfir or anathematizing other Muslims. And so recourse to proper scholarly authority is essential in our communities to make sure that, you know, unfortunate trend doesn't take place. Yet, we also have to keep in mind um, that as a Muslim, many things uh, in our own lives take place on our identity as Muslims. Marriage, inheritance laws, right? You know, the food that we consume, who can lead the prayer. All of these things are contingent upon people identifying themselves as Muslims. And so understanding then, you know, what are those things that that a person has to do to manifest their Islam publicly? And then what are those things that, that jeopardize that Islam, that they have their testimony, are equally important. So it really, it's about working with principles is the key over here to avoiding those type of unfortunate trajectories that we see. MashaAllah. You know, Roshan, Dr. Abbasi, you know, when I was reading your article, I really appreciated this historical trajectory of the concept of idolatry, and particularly within the Jewish uh, tradition, although you just kind of, you know, uh, gave a, a, a very quick kind of impression. You didn't kind of explore, okay, that wasn't the central theme of the article, but talking about St. Augustine's work, Seculum, uh, and looking at, okay, where does this idea of the secular and the religious kind of enter this, this dialogue about idolatry? And one of the, the outcomes of the work of St. Augustine Pippo was that he gave Christians, and he softened some of the earlier positions of Tertullian, giving Christians the ability to be, to thrive as Roman citizens, right? And so I immediately made this linkage uh, between that conception of idolatry and where we are now with uh, COVID-19. You know, many Muslims that I knew would charge that fiqh was obscuritanous, it was unnecessarily detailed, it was, but those same people were, I mean, amazingly scrupulous when it came to staying six feet from people, wearing their masks, you know, inside of gatherings and assemblies, staying home. And so I said, subhanAllah, if your 
um, uh, commitment to a religious regime of, of knowing was like your commitment to a secular regime of knowing. But I, I didn't say that they were committing shirk. I didn't say it was idolatrous, right? But I, I, I saw a connection there. And so I almost felt like when I was reading the article, I was, you know, because this was just kind of a, a musing of mine. Just I was thinking about it. Like the same people that would say fiqh is obscuritiness and it's unnecessary and who cares about all of these details. But when it came to the COVID restrictions, it had to be six feet. No more than four people in an elevator. You know, we had to wear our mask. We should avoid public assemblies if possible. And I thought, wow, it, I almost felt like I was seeing, I wouldn't call it idolatry, but it, it almost appeared as though um, those restrictions related to COVID-19 were certainly more real. They were musallamat if you will. They were things that you accepted there. You, you accepted the prescriptiveness of those restrictions, whereas in the religious context, you know, that can all be jettisoned. And I almost felt like your article was, was kind of highlighting some of the, I guess, tension between those two modes of knowing. Yeah, no, this is a very interesting musing of yours. It makes me think that I think it's it's a broader problem, we might say, of secular liberalism, right? I mean, the the exact metaphor you're using is actually perfect, right? With COVID-19, you have authority figures. I mean, you have authority figures you listen to, you cite them, you talk about the enemies who aren't down with your specific value system. It's the same sort of workings of a religion, in, in essence, right? The kind of deep sentiments, deep feelings and concerns people have, I mean, it constantly expresses about this. So it has all the trappings, we might say, of a medieval religious discourse. And I think that's the problem. And it relates something that uh, Dr. Qureshi was saying earlier, right? With secular liberalism, one of the problems that one encounters is that to create this sort of overlapping consensus, you have to, as Rawls said, sort of remove comprehensive doctrines, right? But that sort of implies that the most serious things about the things that actually make us human, right? What makes us human is not our simply our bodies, our health, and so on and so forth. It's our ability to think, our ability to believe, our believe, our ability to create social, you know, communities that uh, are based on deeper notions of good and evil, and so on and so forth. But there is this tendency in the modern age to sort of strip ourselves of all of the seriousness of that sort of deepest human quality. And again, to just say it's a sort of trivial thing, it doesn't, you know, when it invokes authority, it's illegitimate, right? It's idolatrous, it's false. When it, you know, has these debates and contestations and so on and so forth, these are not, you know, things that have the kind of utmost significance, right? Because they don't have, essentially, they don't have any sort of economic value, right? I mean, that's how we measure the value of things in today's day and age. And, and that's just replacing, really, one religion with another, right? And People aren't able to see that. And so it's very interesting that you say that because I do think, uh, and this isn't something I necessarily um, expressed in the article, but I do think that, you know, idolatry itself is something which, you know, even if people aren't saying it, they're still do, they're still using it. They're still claiming, they're still working with those categories. These are very human categories, right? There's a reason it's for the Quran. It's not as if God is simply imposing it on us, this very foreign thing that makes no sense to our nature. Oh no, this is something that is at the heart of the human experience. And it'll never go away, even if we call it something else, even if we make one sort of term outdated or archaic, 
it's still there. And, and sort of one of the things I do believe is that we have to sort of, and that's precisely why we have to deeply engage the Quran, because I, I don't think that these are outdated. I think these terms are ever present in our realities, as just you, you said, the deeper kind of concept, the work it does. And we have to sort of reappropriate it, see how the Quran is talking about it so that we can sort of put forth a more robust, a more, I would say, honest conception of idolatry rather than sort of smuggled idea that you've sort of alluded to. No, no, I mean, because the, just as a follow-up, you know, thinking about idolatry and looking through that broader lens and kind of seeing it with that valence, you also think about, well, what is religion? Because if you're thinking about idolatry in that way, then certain kinds of engagement with the secular, they begin to appear more and more religious. Right? That, that kept coming to me, of course, of reading your, your beautifully written article. Thank you. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that sentiment. Dr. Omar, you know, this is kind of a controversial idea. And if you want to, like, hard pass on this question, we can pass on it. But I hope you don't. I read one of the contentions of uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, and he said, the new shahada of the Muslim is there is no Islam except Islam, and Muhammad is the messenger of Islam almost suggesting that there's a kind of idolatry taking place with Islamic tradition itself. That tradition becomes this idol that is worshipped, that is uncompromisingly submitted to, in, in lieu of God, right? Do you think that this is just Sheikh Abdul Hakim taking some poetic license, or do you, do you think there's any merit to that idea? That's, that's a great that's a great question. I'll give it a stab. And the sense that, um, you know, when I, I have read that contention prior, and what came to my mind was the foregrounding of identity in like modern secular world that we live in, where the project of modernity is creating yourself, right, or and inventing yourself, not discovering yourself, which is perhaps a, a pre-modern notion, but the idea of inventing yourself. And when people look to Islam, why people either practice a religion, us moderns, or why people convert to the religion, what came to my mind was perhaps there is an issue of uh, identity there. It's not that you're coming to the religion for a theological truth, that in fact the shahada itself is a proposition that reflects and corresponds to reality, and it's a statement about God and his oneness, and then it's a statement about the Prophet ﷺ being the messenger of God. Rather, it's uh, you look at Islam and you, you, you perhaps like the way it's being practiced. You look at it more in functional sociological terms. It provides me with a community and it fulfills my identity. I can dress in a certain way. I can be in a certain, with a certain group of people. And hence, it's less about God and the theological truths of, and realities uh, of the cosmos and of God and his messenger. And it's more about the person and the identity that they're creating by becoming a Muslim. And that can be very disruptive for communities. It can be very disruptive for the person themselves. So we have to recognize the various motives which people bring to the religion and to Muslim communities. And um, this creates very interesting situations about what type of questions were asked. And, it, and also, it reminds me of, I think it was Dr. Sayyid Say Nasser who mentioned that if you look at the books and the titles of books in the past, right, there were always, you see the name Allah being mentioned in the title, right, Fagul Ilah, and, uh, you know, many other titles you'll see. But at a certain point in history, in recent history, 
it was Islam and socialism, Islam and capitalism, Islam and this and Islam and that. So rather than talking about God, rather than talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now it's this reified system, right, that's being talked about. And so that's also, I think, what's playing around here. And so in, in some ways, God is taking a backdrop, right? God is, is now foregrounded in contemporary understandings of Muslims uh, as they relate to Islam. So it's more or less, how do I relate to my community rather than how I relate to God? It's not that they're, it's not that they're co-exclusive, not that they're mutually exclusive, but in terms of order, one can take a, a backdrop that can be pretty dangerous, you know, in, in the sense that if it's more about Islam and the community rather than about God, it can create a lot of unfortunate circumstances that perhaps we're, we're finding ourselves in here. And so I, yeah, I was thinking it relates more to a person's identity, right? You know, why they become Muslim rather than the shahada being a statement about reality and God's reality and the Prophet's reality. To just add one point to that, it's very interesting. I mean, this use of the term reification too, right? I think it was actually Wilbur Kenwell Smith, the scholar of religion back in the 60s, who did a very close study to see how in the pre-modern past, you didn't have Islam in the title. And now we live in an age where Islam speaks, Islam says this, Islam is that. And one mm-hmm. interesting to bring it back to this point of ideology, right? To use the term reification, it essentially means, right, that previously Islam, it was an experience, right? It was this dynamic experience of submission, the deepest sense. And now Islam is a thing, right? It's literally an object, right? And that is precisely what idolatry is speaking to, right? This tendency to objectify. It could be to objectify one's relations, one's possessions, to see them as objects, and essentially to devote oneself to those objects, right? And if we think about modern Islamist projects, right? Islam is a thing now. It's not an experience. I devote myself to this project. I just, I want to establish a state on this thing. It's really just worshiping at the altar of religion, in this case, Islam. And and that is a very different way of experiencing this, what God calls submission in the Quran. And and so I I like this term of reification because I do think what Abdulkim Murad is alluding to is a very distinctively modern problem that we have in our relationship to religion. And it's very widespread. And, and I'd say it also applies to, you know, secular people as well with nationalist identities, whatever it may be. If I could add here too, I was reading a very interesting gloss of a theologian, Al-Ghazali. This verse in the Quran, right? You know, where have you not considered the case of a person who takes his own hawa, a very difficult term to translate, but for now we can say their own desire, their own caprice. No, no Rushan chose a, a Chinese translation that said nature. I really nature. Like, yeah. yeah. If we're referring perhaps to like, yeah, just natural desires or base, you know, inclinations. And then Ilaha, who as a God, and Ghazali has a very interesting gloss on this, where he said that everyone who follows their natures, to use Roshan's uh, contribution here, has taken, so if you know, bl- blindly following your hawa, then that uh, everyone who blindly follows their hawa has has taken on their hawa as a object of worship, and then he invokes this verse here, and then he says, if you think about this, he goes, and he says that the actual idol worshiper is not really worshiping that idol. In in fact, in in fact, in that idol worshiper is worshiping their desires. And why does he say that? He says because his soul is inclining towards the religion of his forefathers or something that, and so what he's actually doing is following that inclination. 
and the soul's inclination to those things that are ma'lufat, those things that are well known for it, that the soul knows and are very common and familiar, that's one of the meanings of the word hawa, right? And so, you know, it's very interesting. This is Ghazali's gloss, and I thought it was very profound that, in fact, really what's happening is here, shirk is now, or taking on an object, right, as Roshane was saying, as a god, is really, in fact, what we're doing is following our desires. And this is a very nice example of what the Quran is considering, that when you take on your desires, you're treating that object. Let me just as a guy. one thing, because this is such a fascinating thought. And it made me think, you know, in the kind of rise of the critique of religion in the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment period, very famously, Ludwig Feuerbach, you know, presents this criticism, which is that essentially religion is just the kind of projection of our, you know, our desires and our aspirations. And in this sense, if we use that metaphor, I think it works quite well, right? The idol is, is nothing more than a projection, a projector, we might say, of what's really inside of us. And we are just worshiping the self ultimately. And so it could be an actual idol, or it could be, as I you know, mentioned throughout the article, something beyond that. But at the core of it, and this is something I didn't realize up until now, based on what you're saying, this fascinating Vazalian reading, it's really just finding these you know, projectors to just simply project our own desires, our lowest base desires, and to bow down to that, and really to bow down to the self, rather than the only thing that is outside of ourselves, which is really only God, the ultimate real being in the entire world. So that's very interesting. Now, and, and, and I think in this regard, too, I mean, the quote that you mentioned from Maimonides about, you know, idolatry really being a violation of God's transcendence, God's otherness, right? Because, of course, most theologians talk about imminence and transcendence being, you know, what we seek through our relationship with the divine. And when, you know, imminence is violated, it results in ta'atil, that God is, you know, kind of the God of the philosophers, the God of the deist, is way out there and not really involved with us. But when transcendence is violated, God becomes this, this object, right, you know, onto which we, you know, project uh, ourselves, right? Very, very, very compelling idea. Now, one thing that I wanted to ask you, Dr. Abbasi, we called you Rushan, Rushane, Dr. Abbasi, you know, all in the same conversation, and you have been indulging and generous throughout, so we appreciate you dearly, my, my dear brother. You talked about this Quranic verse where Allah Ta'ala says, وَاسْتَعْمَرُكُمْ فِيهَا That God has placed you in the earth. And I, I mean, this was one of the most creative readings of this verse I have ever encountered. That part of that isti'mar is having a comfortable relationship. Not comfortable, because you do mention that the Quran certainly, you know, commands us to establish a more just and better you know, order, right? That we're not content with the status quo, but we don't feel uh, ill at ease with the world around us. And we're not engaged in just these romantic revisionist projects, but rather we're engaging in, you know, the world around us. When you were talking about, you know, some of those modernist Islamists, I really think that they were attempting to engage the world around them. Right? And the fact that maybe that engagement resulted in a reification of Islam that was perhaps even idolatrous, does that, you know, 
I mean, how do we engage this kind of thought in our context without falling into the same trap is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, this is the million dollar question. I mean, how does the believer interact with the world around them? I mean, this is actually the the central question around idolatry that Tertullian and Augustine are all asking, right? Where does one draw the lines? How at home should the believer feel? I mean, this is Augustine's whole idea of the city of God versus the terrestrial realm. And when I played around with the interpretation of this verse, and there are other verses which also signal this sort of rootedness, this groundedness in in the earth, in the world. My point was to first say, well, let's take a step back. And I would actually um, say, in contrast to the way you depicted the modernists, I actually think they were a little bit too reactionary, a little bit too away, sort of feeling unrooted and they were feel, feeling a little bit too groundless in the world. So in some senses, they were very politically active, right? They, and for good reason, again, we had to talk about these independence movements, so on and so forth. But in another way, they were also... No, very uneasy about their current the current state of society. I mean, if you look at, for example, Sayyid Qutb and you know some Marxist revolutionaries and other places like Iran, you know, there is this emphasis on you know developing a sort of vanguard in society and so on and so forth. It's it's not a light and easy read. It's not. It doesn't come from a place of feeling at home in the world, but really a a a, a, a deep sense of displacement, right? And I'm not here to critique people of the past. You know, I stand on the shoulders of these people who, you know, help build the world that we live in now. But I do think we have the sort of leg room now and the kind of freedom to look back and say, well, we don't have to be in this kind of state of a cognitive dissonance, of feeling totally at odds with the world around us, right? I, I remember one time in one lecture, Abdul Murad spoke to this. When you come across these really, you know, passionate da'is in, you know, the streets or on the table, so on and so forth, they're often presenting themselves as if they have their own kind of deep existential. It's almost like they're projecting it on the people around them, trying to bring them down into this. You know, it's not usually a kind of nice and soft demeanor that's in disposition that's being presented, right? And and you often associate it with these kinds of movements. It's sort of it's rigid. It doesn't feel you know you don't you're not attracted to it at a very kind of basic human level, right? And so. But I think when, you know, God talks about this idea of istamarkum fiha, I mean, just really like he's rooted you in this world. I mean, you're from it, you're of it. And, and I think that suggests that, you know, we should orient ourselves differently, that we've sort of lost this, I think, in the modern Muslim world and, and sort of making Islam ugly, right? I mean, the world is so beautiful, right? It's to also say that just as the world is beautiful, you know, your nature, the way you present yourself should, should be that beauty where people just see it and they say, wow, that's just, that's, I'm just drawn to it. I don't know saying i don't know but there's something beautiful there's something natural and, and aesthetically but also deeply spiritually right and that's something i was sort of highlighting and i think one of the things i the reason i mentioned this point is that i think in our interactions with modernity and you know the current world order we often assume this kind of uh deep sense of cognitive dissonance or we jump on to kind of postmodern critiques which are very sort of you know deeply i would say sort of unrooted in kind of reality and human nature and easiness and so on and so forth. It's kind of obsession with what's wrong, essentially, right? One scholar I know causes the kind of fetishization of the Baal, right? It's sort of obsessed with falsehood, right? And that, I think, is a pathology, to be obsessed with what's wrong. What's wrong? What's going, what's going wrong in the world? You don't want to be around a person. I mean, you don't want to talk to a person who's constantly, you know, bringing you down, you know? And I think that's something I wanted to highlight. Let's talk about this creatively. Let's not bring ourselves down with idolatry, but to sort of uplift ourselves, release ourselves of the shackles of idolatry. Beautifully stated. 
Dr. Omar, I'll give you the last word. You've you know contributed to the conversation very wisely heretofore and, and very substantively. So please, just whatever you'd like to share about this conversation we've been having or just uh, a closing thought that you'd like to offer our listenership. But please, I'll give you the closing thought. Wow. To build off what Dr. Abbasi was saying about modernity and the conditions that we find ourselves in, you know, as Muslims currently, I guess, you know, one of the th- the, the re- last reflections I would probably like to just share with everybody here is, you know, and it probably links it in with uh, the whole idea of COVID and authority that you brought up with Saddle Allah and how Muslims have been reacting differently in these contexts is, you know, one of the perhaps uh, contenders of idolatry in our times is perhaps how we treat science, right? And how we look at, and I shouldn't say science, I should say like modern science. And there's a cultural, and I'm not talking about the discipline of science, I'm talking about the cultural authority, you know, that we as human beings, as moderns, you know, have granted to science. And perhaps we treat this in many ways that, you know, we should I, I perhaps rethink, you know, in terms of how science and how we study the natural world, which is a very normal human phenomenon to study the natural world has been going on since day one. But perhaps, you know, what's different or what's new is how we as modern give an authority to science, you know. And something to think about, there is a hadith of the Prophet where it's in Bukhari and Muslim and Muatab and Ahmada too, where after a morning prayer, the Prophet, he turned around, you know, to his companions and then he said, you know, He goes, are you aware of what your Lord has said to me? And the companions, typical, you know, Allah be pleased with them, Allahu wa Rasuluhu a'lam. And then he says, he said, God said, Asbaha min ibadi, mu'minun bi wa kafirun bi. He goes, many of my slaves or my servants have entered the morning, some of them believing in me and others disbelieving in me. And then he says, as for those who, you know, as for those who have said, we have received rain, right? So he's referring to a natural phenomenon of rain by God's mercy and by God's grace, that, then that individual is a believer in God. And that individual is a kafir bil kokob. That person is denying godhood of the planets, meaning that the planets have no causal efficacy. And as for the person who says, you know, we received rain due to the planetary causes and, you know, and assigning it to certain laws in the universe, meaning assigning them causal efficacy, then that person is a disbeliever in God, you know. And so I think this is very important and and important for us as Muslims to pay attention to because we seem to grant this almost godlike voice to modern science and how we should live our lives. In fact, you know, when anybody who studies science knows the nature of science, uh, there's definitely certainties that scientists know about how the world works and how the universe functions. But there's many areas where the knowledge is probabilistic at best. And yet we treat what scientists tell us with as if everything they say is with utter certainty. And I think, you know, the COVID situation has kind of brought this to light in terms of, you know, at at my institution, you know, one of the things that we've learned is, you know, the COVID has pointed out our areas of institutional weakness 
I think COVID has also brought to light areas of, of theological weakness that we have, you know, as moderns. And I think we need to rethink perhaps what our relationship is to science and how that relates to God and how he interacts in the universe. So perhaps we don't commit idolatry, so to speak, uh, in that area. So I'll leave it with that. Yeah. MashaAllah. Beautiful. I feel as though we're just getting started, right? I feel as though the plane is still on the runway. We're still on the jetway. We're just about to to take off, but this will just set us up for part two. God willing. Thank you so much, Dr. Rushan Abbasi. Thank you so much, Dr. Amal Qureshi. Thank you to all of our listeners at the Renovatio uh, podcast. Please be sure to join us again. It was my pleasure to be in conversation with these erudite gentlemen. Thank mm-hmm. you.